Welcome back to Talking Guitar, brought to you by the Carter Vintage Exchange and the North American Guitar in Nashville, Tennessee. Lindsay here, and this week I feature my chat with the man behind circuit guitars, Mr. John Slobod. John's experience as a luthier includes longtime collaborations with fellow New England guitar legends Dana Bourgeois, Julius Borges, and Eric Schoenberg, so it should come as no surprise that he's one of the best at handcrafting Martin-style guitars. But as faithful as he is to studying and recreating the magic of the golden era, he'll be the first to tell you that he challenges preconceptions, both his own and the popularly held ones, all the time. In anticipation of the two circuits we have on the way this year, we chat about his history, musical interests, and more. So please enjoy my chat with John Slobod of Circa Guitars. Being both guitar makers, you kind of were able to get right into the weeds really quickly. So I'm not sure that I know as much about your your evolution into guitar making and what got you into it beforehand. I was a, a dropout at Berkeley, not the music school. The California. California. I was a comparative religions major and with a focus on uh, sociology of culture. I wanted to kind of look at where religion in the modern world was kind of losing influence and being replaced by celebrity culture. Mm. And this was in 1990 or the late 80s. And now look at where we are. It's just insane. Celebrity (laughs) culture is, is, that is our culture. We don't really have a, a culture of literature anymore in America. It seems like it's all celebrity culture. Anyway, yeah. Um, so I dropped out of school and went around the world for a year and then came back and got a job at a machine shop with a good friend of mine. While I kind of figured out, okay, if I'm going to go back to school and finish and go to grad school, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, I became really interested in the neo-traditional bluegrass scene that was happening in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, sort of the dog-influenced scene, Tony Rice and uh, Tim O'Brien and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I got into that and um, and I loved making stuff at this machine shop. You know, I discovered I was good at measuring things and cutting things and, you know, loved making stuff. Uh, but um, I didn't really want to grind welds for a living. <laughs> <You know? laughs> My wife, who's brilliant and was an amazing person at networking before the internet existed, was like, oh, you like making stuff. You're obsessed with music. Why don't you put those two things together? Yeah. And I I began, you know, my quest to like either be a violin maker or a guitar maker or a guy who pounds dents out of saxophones. You know, <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do. My the, I went around the world with Ruth. We got married when I went uh, to this machine shop and um you know she did all this research there were a couple of schools back then this is the you know 1992 there were only a couple places in the country to learn how to make guitars yeah uh, roberto venn there was timeless instruments in canada there was um a couple of violin making schools and there was a couple of schools maybe one or two where you could go to like learn everything. Like you could learn how to set up a violin, set up a trumpet and a cello and repad a saxophone and all that stuff. Oh, and I thought, interesting. maybe that's what I'll do because if I marry Ruth and we move back to Maine, I'm going to be running a tiny little music store in the middle of nowhere and I'm going <laughs> to have to, you know, do all that crap. Yeah, diversify. And fortunately, I play a fair number of instruments. I was a Reeds guy, Reed nerd. Oh, interesting. So I played clarinet and flute and saxophones and 
you know, I play, I started to learn a tiny bit of violin because I thought if I'm going to be doing sound posts, I'm going to need to know how to play the dang things. And mm-hmm. that was my path for a little while. We wanted to be in Maine because Ruth was very close with her family. I grew up in California. She okay. was a Navy brat, but her family has been in Maine for a million generations. Mm-hmm. And her grandmother was in Maine and she wanted to be close to her. So we we're like, oh, let's move to the East Coast if we can be close to your family. Right at the moment, I saw an ad in the Guild of American Luthiers journal that Dana Bourgeois, this guy I'd been reading about, who I considered this like god of guitar making, um, put an ad saying he was looking for people to come work in his factory that he was just starting up. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I got to go talk to this guy. He's in Maine. He'll never hire me. Well, I don't know anything. You know, I, <laughs> I, at that time, I was learning about making instruments and was a member of the Guild of American Luthiers and, you know, really getting used to all the ideas and considerations and things that go into guitar making, but had no experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up meeting Dana at uh, one of the uh I think it was an Asia symposium. It's like the other organization similar to the Guild of American Luthiers. Uh, and he hired me on the spot. Really? Mostly because he, he confessed to me years later why he hired me, like 15 years later. He said, well, I hired you because your your wife was from Maine and I figured you'd stick around. <laughs> That's kind of a valid point. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want somebody who's going to move I was, away. I was there for over 4,000 instruments over the course of 15 years. Wow. Um, but he also hired me because I had machine shop experience. And he mm-hmm. thought, okay, this guy can, you know, if anything, he can make blocks, you know, and bracewood and stuff. He can run machinery. Mm-hmm. So um, so we moved to Maine and I had a job waiting for me. And it was a dream situation because I, I got in just as he was starting the company. Uh, we were still oh, like yeah. doing sheet wall to the wall, sheetrock to the walls. Wow you know, making jigs and fixturing and that stuff. So I got to see that process. And then whenever there was something to do, you know, it was a couple of people who had some experience in Luthery and a bunch of uh, like local guys, contractors hired from Lewiston, Maine, who knew nothing about guitar making. And um, I was kind of the only like young wannabe guitar maker on the, hmm. on the staff. And uh so Dana would say, who wants to, you know, put in rosettes? And I would be like, me, me, me. And, you know, who wants to carve a neck? I'll do it, you know. And so I got to learn everything on the job. And, you know, I was kind of a, I think, a joke at Bourgeois. They're like, oh, yeah, Slobod wants to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was a great learning experience. And I yeah. got to do it. Whenever I get asked by aspiring young luthiers, you know, I just got out of Luthery school. What should I do? Uh, I'm like, go get a job in a small factory mm-hmm. because you can get your chops so fine tuned working on 500 instruments a year or, you know, 800 or a thousand instruments a year. You can never get that experience if you're building 10 guitars in your basement Yeah, every year. So, you know, it's a, it's a great situation and you, you know, you learn from all the people around you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you learn what the industry standards are in terms of, you know, craftsmanship and uh, and you get the experience of handling wood. That was the other most valuable thing for me was just seeing how 
500 instruments a year using the same uh, voicing techniques, the same woods, how different models or different instruments would sound different from others. And yeah. then I took notes, you know, like, oh, this one has a really stiff sitka top. This one has a lighter weight one. This one flexes along the grain more than the other one, you know. And then I would make notes. And when the guitars got upstairs, uh, Chuck Thornton, this amazing guitar builder. Yeah, in- yeah. You know, Chuck? Yeah. Is- C.P. Thornton guitars, incredible, mm-hmm. innovative electrics. Um, Chuck was the setup guy there. Oh, okay. I would go up and tell Chuck, hey, you know, when production number 237 comes by, call me. I want to hear that one because there was something notable about it. Mm-hmm. And it was, so it's a great opportunity. To, I don't know if in other factories where you have that opportunity, but I did for years yeah. and years to, you know, to hear how different elements you know, came out the other end and what they sounded like. And you you don't have to wait months and months to hear them in a factory like that. The guitars go through pretty quickly, mm-hmm. especially you know if they're using catalyzed finishes. You know, you can be flexing a top and have strings on the guitar, you know, five weeks later. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't. Yeah, I actually just spoke to Jake Minier, who worked at Loudon for about seven years, and he had a kind of similar experience where he got to be a part of all sorts of different parts of the process. And yeah, you you have access to probably woods you wouldn't necessarily have access to, like just as a solo luthier right out of the gate. So you get to all that yeah. that much more experience with everything. And and yeah, I just that speed up of the process, you get to see how things all kind of you get to see the bigger picture. I think in a way that you can't necessarily on your own at first, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's, sure, it's soul crushing, but you know, who cares? <laughs> you learn but, things. <laughs> yeah, right. You're breathing toxic dust and maybe cutting your fingers off. Oh, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's fun to be in the trenches for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm surprised I lasted as long as I did. It's it does it is a grueling job, and I yeah have health issues because of it. Um, I mean, every every luthier will end up with health issues to degrees, but but if you're doing mm-hmm. production. Yeah, I've yeah. been binding, uh, you know, for 10 years straight and you're down with your head like this, you know, scraping, oh, taping, sanding, you know, like 40 hours a week. And mm-hmm. so it's hard on your body, um, you know, and the dust is flying all the time. And even though it's gotten much better in most of the factories, the dust collection is is pretty good, mm-hmm. you know, relative to small shops, but um, still it's there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, it is a, you're, you are making things that is a craft. And so there are those risks associated with it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how long were you at Bourgeois again? I was there uh, from 90, was it 93 um, to um, 99, I believe. Okay. And then I had met Julius Borges. He came uh, he was working for Eric Schoenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jul- Dana also had a history with Eric. Yeah, we just um, had one of those um, one of those Schoenbergs in that had you and Julius. And I I don't know if Dana was still on that one, but yeah, you two were on it. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, that yeah. was the that was the shop that I went. I'm about to tell you about uh, awesome. little, the Littleton Mass shop. Um, mm. It was a it was a period when Schoenberg guitars had started out with Dana and Eric, then it went to TJ and Eric, TJ mm-hmm. Thompson. Then it went to Julius and Eric. And that incarnation lasted from 1999, or maybe 98 to the year 2000, I believe. 
Okay. Um, at some point in 2000, I think it, it disintegrated. Um, and then shortly after that, Eric started working with some really talented people in California. Mm. But up to that time, he was working with East Coast guys. Uh, anyway, so I, I had met Julius. He came to, to Dana's shop and um, we needed some help. Uh, like one week, maybe somebody was on vacation or something. And Julius came to kind of, he was just starting with Schoenberg and he was like, I want to check out all the fixtures and tooling, you know, to help me go from being a small builder in my basement to a guy running a, a small, you know, basically a three man operation. But I need, you know, Dana's got all these jigs and fixtures that would be really fun to see. So he came up and he brought an OM that he'd built. And at that point, I'd done all sorts of things. This was still pretty early. Um, you know, it's 1999, I think. Uh, and I was at the binding bench at that point, but I'd also done top voicing and neck carving and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had a fair amount of experience doing the bourgeois voicing. And um, so Julius brought his OM and and I showed him what we were doing. And I played his OM and I was like, damn, that sounds unlike anything I've heard. You know, we're making these insanely great guitars, the best guitars I've heard on the market. Are coming mm -hmm. out of this shop, but his guitar sounded different, um, a little more vibrant to me, and a little bit more musical in the trebles. And I was like, "What the heck are you doing different?" And he said, "I, you know, I." Then I showed him what we were doing, and he's like, "It's it's barely anything different, but <laughs> a few small changes make a big difference in the sound." And Julius's philosophy, which was revolutionary in a way. Um, and very influential, um, as it turned out, if you follow the Blue 3 from the past 25 years, but totally obvious also in that he just thought, well, you know, if you want a guitar to sound like it was made in 1930, why don't you just make it the same way they made it? <laughs> yeah. Huh. If you make it differently, it's going to sound different. You know, never yeah. mind all those arguments people have about it has to be played in or the oxidization of the wood or the shrinking of the finish or the glue or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, he just wanted to make them the same way they were made in the Martin factory in 1930. And that's what we tried to do. And literally it comes down to the bracing was maybe a tiny bit different. Mm -hmm. The tops maybe were four thousandths thinner, not, hardly anything. Mm -hmm. And the finishes were straight nitro maybe a shellac undercoat, no catalyzed finish whatsoever, mm -hmm. and hide glue on everything. Right. And it really made a difference. And I went to, I I was leaving Bourgeois at the time because I thought I've had enough, you know, grind. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's tough being at the binding bench for six years in a row. <laughs> it was it was a slog um, physically. And so Julius hired me. And I went down there and, um, you know, he taught me to use hide glue. And I had brought my experience as a production guy to his shop, which was very useful. It was a very, very uh, um, synchronistic, uh, you know, relationship. And we really had a blast in that shop. We had so much fun and made some great guitars. Um, and then I was going to leave the, that part of Schoenberg disintegrated. I worked for Julius on making gorgeous guitars briefly, uh, including some really interesting early Gibson guitars. Uh, 
I think I made three J45s, three J185s, and three L00s before oh, cool. I left. And I never got to hear any of them. Oh. Because then I got, I was about to leave and go put out my shingle after all these years. Mm-hmm. And then Dana called me and said, Hey, I want to, I'm starting up a new company. The first incarnation of Bourgeois folded, uh, which is a long story and an interesting one. Um, but it was being reborn mm-hmm. with the grand concept to be Pantheon guitars. It was going to be a large company and with a very interesting concept of having Dana oversee the designs of a bunch of really well-known makers who were making, you know, 10 to 15 instruments a year. Oh. He wanted to run a company that would make a factory version of their guitars, like, you know, a, a Sadowski or a Bob Benedetto or, um, you know, Jim Olson or something like some, you know, mm-hmm. luthiers were very well known, very well respected, but didn't have the capacity of a factory. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the idea. And he wanted me to come back and and like run the custom shop or something. And I said, I can't do production anymore. I have my neck issues, you know, um, are getting to me. And at the time, I didn't realize that I was just diagnosed with something called Graves disease, which is a thyroid condition. Oh, oh no. Um, which can be pretty horrific um, mm-hmm. and was for a while, but it's uh, it's much better now. There's no cure for it, but I'm, I'm much better than I used to be. Okay. Anyway, uh, so I went to Dana... Uh, I went to my wife and I said, he's going to offer me a job and I don't want to work production and I can't work production. And let's just set some super high number that they'll never match. And then when I went to meet him, he named that exact number. (laughs) So you're like, (laughs) oh no. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, all right, I'll take the sure thing. So I went back to work for Dana. And then um, interestingly, Pantheon never materialized because of 9-11. Oh. All the investment dried up. Okay. And we never got to build a giant factory and hire like 40 workers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just turned into basically bourgeois guitars 2.0. I see. And I ended up being the binding monkey for another seven years <laughs> or eight years. <laughs> oh. uh, but, you know, it was a sure thing in terms of the, the money. And I had young kids to raise. And, um, and I started Circa while I worked at Dana's. Okay. That was part of our arrangement to get me back was that I could use the shop after hours and get my brand established in the marketplace while I still had a regular paycheck. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that, I mean, other than working basically two jobs, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah. Yeah. And being sick while doing it. it was oh, yeah. Fun. Yeah. It, it did work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I developed a pretty good reputation and made five or six guitars you know, on evenings and weekends, which now I think about it, I'm like making 12 to 15 guitars a year. And I'm like, I must have been, I mean, it's different when you're young, your energy level is even being really sick. My energy level was like so high Mm -hmm. that I was able to just crank stuff out, you know, that fast was kind of remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. On top of whatever you were doing every day and being on the production line. Parenting little kids. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the other side of it. Like that, that's a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was a little nuts. Well, so what year was it that you went totally um, under your own name? Uh, I think 2008 or nine. Okay. So not, not super long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, other than just the freedom of, of working just for yourself and doing your own thing, what are, what are the best parts for you of, of that change? 
Um, the best part for me was the physicality of it. Not doing the same repetitious step over and over again was killing me. Yeah. Um, and it was probably exacerbated by my Graves' disease. Uh, it weakened certain muscle groups, interestingly. Oh, so interesting. really, I really stressed certain parts of my body. The binding station in a, at a shop is also among the hardest on your body. Hmm. Um, and uh, so having that flexibility was really fun. Getting to do the whole process mm-hmm. was really fun. Um, you know, it's also a little interesting, you know, one of the luxuries of being at a small factory is you do the same thing all the time. So you get so good at it. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to think about it. It's so Zen. I mean, I could just like cut binding channels and set a neck in my sleep. You know, it was just <laughs> crazy because you do it so often. And then when you go to do working on your own and you're only making like 14 instruments a year or whatever, it can be a long time between doing certain things, especially if you do batches. And, you know, you have to go scratch your head and go, oh, God, how do I solve this problem again? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get good at it again. But, you know, by the time you've gone through the process, you're like, OK, all right, I'm good to go again. Yeah. But it is interesting because you have to master. So I mean, this is the thing that there were a lot of times when I wanted to quit. Uh, making a guitar at a very high level is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. It's not that complicated. Uh, you know, I could teach somebody to do it really quickly uh, if they had an interest in it. The hard part is getting from point A to point Z mm-hmm. and you have 26 steps and all of them have to go exactly right. Yeah. So one little screw up and it sets you back. And when you're only, you know, your whole output is only 14 instruments. Um, it's tough to get all the way to the very end, the finish line and not make one, you know, like one tiny little picking up a sanding block and you forgot to check that there's a little pebble stuck to it and you've destroyed a top, you know? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it is not for the faint of heart, this this career. Yeah. Um, you know, every, every career has its challenges, but uh, one of the things of being, you know, an individual luthier is you just have to master everything. It took me, for a long time, I didn't do my own finished work because I didn't want to deal with the toxins and then there was a law, a huge learning curve to learn the finishing, to be a master finishing guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to learn how to voice. You got to learn how to carve necks. You got to learn how to glue properly. Like glue technique is something that takes a long time to master, really. And um, there's just so many things that you have to be good at yeah. when you're on your own, be, being the only guy doing it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's to be able to keep all of those parts in mind while something is still in the very unfinished state that like, that seems like that is some next level thinking that, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Yeah. But that's part of what makes it fun too. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's full of challenge. That's for sure. And it's kind of ironic. um, My dad is an aeronautical engineer, but also a guy who built model airplanes, you know, these things made out of little sticks and you know they're very there's a lot of design element to it but the other intriguing thing to me is that he was constantly tinkering with the designs he never built an airplane just to put it together and fly it he was always tinkering with 
airfoils and like the oh, aspect ratio, which is the length of the wing to the distance from the leading edge to the trailing edge. Oh, okay. And all sorts of different, you know, like theories about why wing foils, which is the shape of the wing, uh, how it changes the way the airplane flies and the how, you know, how much ballast do you add to it to make a certain wing function properly at a certain altitude. And so I realized guitar making is basically the same thing. Yeah. It's high level craftsmanship, but we're always tinkering with how do we make the structures serve a function? Uh, it's not, uh, you know, it's it's different than other types of woodworking in that way in that it's it's so mysterious. I mean, making a chair is really difficult. They're among the most difficult things to make is a chair because there's so many stresses on it. But you're not really wondering, you know, about the same types of concerns that you do with a guitar in terms of, you know, if you shave a leg on a chair a little bit differently, it's not going to affect like the way the person who sits in it responds to it really. Yeah. <laughs> you know? With guitar making, every little change, you know, like a few thousandths of an inch different in a certain part of mm -hmm. a guitar top can change the character of the instrument. Yeah. And, so, and nobody knows exactly why it all works the way it does. And so the, there's a lot of mystery to it, which is which is a fun pursuit to, you know, kind of, you know, drive yourself nuts with. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there there's so many things about it that as like a non-crafts person, as a non-person who really makes anything for myself other than food, like are very mysterious. And so, yeah, like things like especially the carving of the tops and everything. I'm like, how do you approach that? Is there do you kind of come at it with some some amount of like calculation beforehand and then sort of go in and sort of feel things out from there? Or like what what's your general approach to something like that? Well, um, Although I have done a lot of thinking about what makes instruments tick, I always, I think one of the reasons I work so well with Julius because I think kind of the same way he does. I'm mm -hmm. like, start with a pattern that you know works really well. Learn that pattern, you know, mm -hmm. just make do it a lot. Learn, you know, how to get a consistent result using an established pattern. Uh, and by pattern, I mean, you know, like red spruce top, OM, mm -hmm. X brace in a certain place, braces a certain way of shaving, you know, that that whole recipe that is like a pre-war OM, mm -hmm. just do it a lot. And you'll, even that will drive you nuts because they don't all <laughs> sound the same, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then you start to tinker. And that's been my philosophy is start with something that works. I mean, everybody in these Lutheran schools has this idea that, you get all this information and you're like, oh, I'm going to make the lightest top that was ever constructed. And I'm going to, you know, the x brace isn't even going to exist. I'm just going to like draw it on there and I'm going to make the most responsive thing in the history of the universe. And then you play it and it's like, there's no focus and you, you know, it doesn't stay in tune and the top bellies up and, the, yeah. you know, I mean, all this crap happens. And um, so it, I, my philosophy has been to study the pre-war Martin stuff, which was the guitars that I played that spoke to me the most. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, when I was coming up, it, there weren't a lot of really talented builders doing their own kind of thing. You know, there certainly were some, but most people 
you know, in the early 90s, we're doing Martin copies and mm -hmm. mostly dreadnoughts, you know, at that point, you know, or weird versions, weird hippie versions of that. <laughs> and nothing was really all that great. So it made sense to copy vintage guitars because they were so much better than anything any small builder was making. And there were hardly yeah. any small builders in the working in the country anyway, only mm -hmm. a few. My philosophy has changed, though, at, with over the years. Um, I was, you know, in all the books I read, everything was stiffness to weight ratio. You want the stiffest top you can get and the lightest weight mm -hmm. because the mass will impede the movement of the top and the stiffness allows you to lower the mass even more because if you have a stiff, lightweight top, the stiffer it is, the more you can thin it, and then you get a more responsive guitar. But the problem was when I played guitars that were built that way, I liked ones that were built heavier. <laughs> really? And I was like, oh, well, I guess it's more a matter of choice. You know, you don't yeah. have, it doesn't have to be super responsive. And, you know, I was, you know, I'm a sucky guitar player. Like I said, I was a reed guy. I was a lousy sax player, but at least I was a semi-musician on guitar. I was kind of just a dude who played rhythm in band, you know, a couple of bands and and noodled on it when I was tired of practicing sax. But when I did play guitar, I was like, you know, doing lousy finger picking or not finger picking, flat picking tunes. Mm -hmm. And um, I at Bourgeois, I found out some of my favorite guitars that came out of that shop had the heaviest tops. Interesting. Just the My employee guitar, which is serial number two, um, is a guitar known as the banjo killer mm -hmm. and it's a famous guitar or not mine isn't that famous but the its sister guitar was the first bourgeois that brian sutton ever built or ever bought and when it came through the shop it was made out of this bear closet top that weighed a ton and wow. you could not flex it it was the stiffest wood i've ever seen and it was a slope shoulder mahogany guitar mm -hmm. and I wanted to play that guitar. So I went, I told Chuck, when this guitar comes through, you got to call me. I'm coming up here to play it. And I played it and I loved it. it now I play it and I'm like, wow, that thing is tight. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the time I was like, damn, this thing, I can just bang on it so hard. And it was just such an interesting, fun guitar. Um, and by the way, this is probably before we had a decent supply of red spruce. Okay. You know, Brit Spruce didn't really come on the market in a sizable way until, you know, the new millennium. Yeah, there was we were getting some Red Spruce from Michael Reed and a little bit from John Arnold. Um, but it was very few guitars were made with Red Spruce in the in the 90s. There just wasn't anybody harvesting it. OK, uh, I gotcha. So I don't know how I got onto the uh, banjo killer guitar other than the heavy top. That guitar mm. had the heaviest freaking top. And uh uh, it was it was an interesting experiment. And uh, then, interestingly, uh, and very sadly, uh, Brian's banjo killer. So so that guitar went off to Groom Guitars and, and Brian bought it. And that started the relationship of Dana with Ricky Skaggs okay. and his band. So it was it was a big deal, actually. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be because Ricky and, and Dana had a very fruitful relationship for many years. But the banjo killer was destroyed in the Nashville flood. Oh, no. And so they got my guitar back. They got that guitar and they got mine back to use as a model when they reconstructed the guitar for Brian. 
Okay. And Dana asked uh, an amazing craftsman from Japan, a guy named Shin. But uh, Shin came over and did this an unbelievable restoration on Brian's guitar. Wow. Yeah. So I guess kind of continuing on the line of of starting with something that you you know works and that is sort of the the benchmark, I guess, to create a good guitar. Like what what do you do now that maybe differs from the pre-war Martins? And what have you done differently? Well, first of all, new guitars sound different than old guitars. Mm-hmm. You know, even if I built them exactly like the old guitars, which was what we were trying to do when I worked with Julius. And my one complaint with the guitars we were building at Julius's was that they were often quiet. I mean, just magnificently responsive, beautiful tone, like a tone nobody else that I was aware of was making guitars that had that luscious tone, mm-hmm. partly because it was hide glue, which hardly anybody was using then. Very thin nitrocellulose finish, very thin tops, but the projection was a little muted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, if you hear those guitars now, they're anything but muted. They're like little cannons. Mm-hmm. And that influenced my thinking because I realized those guitars had to stretch. The tops were stretching. They were very flexible because they were thin. The braces were, were very small. The X's were scalloped. And they just were, they were young. They were adolescent guitars. It takes a while for those guitars to mature. When they do, uh, especially after like 10 years, they get this focus that they didn't have when they were younger. And they get this projection that is sort of mind-blowing. I mean, they're just fantastic. What I, my goal, you know, after I saw one of those guitars, you know, like 2006 or seven, and I was like, wow, these things are great after you give them six years. I'm like, I want to try to get a guitar that has some of this explosive projection and maintains that hide glue nitro warmth in the trebles. And, you know, just what I always called it like an organic musicality. The the Achilles heel of steel string guitars, I think, is the trebles can be harsh. Mm -hmm. They're not that musical sounding. And that goes for not just the the B and the E string, but also the wound strings can be brash and Mm -hmm. not fully musical. Um, And that's one of the things, that was the thing that struck me when I played Julius's guitar for the first time, was that it sounded more like a vintage guitar and that it it was more organically musical, the notes. Um, You know, kind of like when you get a brand new set of strings and they're kind of, you can't wait for them to break in for a little while. Mm -hmm. That's what new guitars are like. Yeah, yeah. that maintain that sweet character of the hide glue guitars with very thin nitro finishes but also have a little bit more headroom a little more kick when they were new Mm -hmm. Um, you know it's hard to sell somebody something if you tell them just wait seven years yeah (laughs) so that was my goal i wasn't sure how to do it but then uh i started going to a couple of camps to try to sell guitars i went to the steve kaufman flat picking camp and I don't build that many dreadnoughts, but I had an OM and I had a double O with me. And I watched all these flat pickers, some professionals, you know, people teaching at the camp came by and played for hours and they fell in love with the small guitars. Mm-hmm. And Steve, at that point, I didn't know it before I went to the camp. He'd already started playing almost all OM style guitars. Oh, okay. Uh, even though he's 
the flat picking guru of America. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was just blew me away, like the projection of this OM and the double O with a flat pick. I thought, Jesus, the smaller, the smaller top area allows this guitar, you know, it just projects. I, you know, I couldn't get my dreads to do that. If I built dreads really yeah. like, like the 1934 Martins, I mean, if you look inside a 1934 Martin, it looks like a giant OM. The X brace is tiny. The tone mm. bars are small, and yet those guitars have so much headroom. They, I guarantee, when those were new, they were not the same guitars yeah. at all. There's no way because I built them like that. You know, I came out of Julius's and I was like, I'm going to build some dreadnoughts, and they were, they just did not sound like old dreadnoughts. You know, they just didn't have the focus that I wanted. The D18s were better. Rosewood dreads um, are really hard to do well. Uh, yeah. Modern Rosewood dreads are just don't do it for me most of the time. I really wanted to get that projection in the dreadnoughts that I found in the small guitars, and it made me think about the size, the areas, square inches on and double O and an OM, how those guitars were able to behave and still be vibrant and musical and yet have all this headroom, even though they're super lightly built and they were basically meant as small fingerstyle guitars. And so I tried to start incorporating that into my building. And, and it's exactly the opposite of what I was taught. Most of what I was taught as a young aspiring guitar maker was stiffness to weight ratio is everything. Make your tops as light as possible and thin the perimeter, the edge. You want to treat the top like a speaker. It should be thicker in the center, taper a little bit toward the edges and get certainly thinner. And one of the things we did at Bourgeois for years and years was what we called perimeter sanding. You would take a top, you overbuild it a little bit. And then my job as a binding guy was to be the final voicing of the guitar Okay. And actually thin the tops around the edges until they bounced a certain way or had a certain flexibility. I don't do that anymore at all. In fact, I do almost the opposite. My thinking really turned around whereas I, I want a stiff edge. I think it's hmm. part of the key to the vintage sound. Part of the reason, the other thing we were doing is we were putting 25-foot radiuses in the tops. Mm-hmm. Um, and old guitars were built basically flat. You know, there Mm -hmm. may have been some curve to the rim, but the curving is flat. And what that does is you have the string tension pulls the the top up. So you have a dome just because of the string tension, not necessarily because there's a lot of arching in the bracing or anything. Mm -hmm. And then that curve, as it comes down toward the edge, if it has a 25 foot radius, that curve is very graceful and you don't see any distortion there which is kind of cool because you want you want the dome of the top to not be distorted generally. But if you flatten the curving, you create a slight S curve there. And S curves in any structure create stiffness. So what you're doing is you're maybe you have a thinner edge, but it stays stiff because of the S curve. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the key to the dry pre-war Martin sound. Nowadays, I don't do that very often. I use a 65-foot top radius which is almost flat. Mm-hmm. But it, one of the reasons I do 65 feet, uh, there's a couple reasons. One is because when I glue my braces into a slight dish like that, it allows the braces to catch at the ends as I push them down and they don't slide around. High glue can get real slippery. <laughs> <laughs> so it holds everything in place. It puts more even pressure on the braces. You glue it down because there's a slight tension, but it's very slight, but it's enough to make that whole process really easy. Okay. Um, the other reason is the 65 foot radius also puts where the neck 
joins the body, that angle is very critical. And as you set the, the neck to get the proper height of the bridge, where it joins the body, it needs to have some support under the fretboard, or it needs to have a little bit of fall away under it, just so that when it's under string tension, everything lines up properly. And 65 feet is about the sweet spot. Okay. You know, so the geometry of the neck to the where the bridge sits is really nice. Whereas if you do a straight flat top, you have to make some accommodations in your neck block angle and all this other stuff to achieve the same thing. But with 65 feet, it's like everything just is, lines up perfect. Wow. And I get the I get fairly flat top that I'm after to get the sound I'm after. I don't perimeter sand, which oh, is I don't get the edges. Mm-hmm. But you know, I do I do different things for different clients. I mean, I have clients who want a pre-war, really dry pre-war OM18 kind of sound. Or I have clients who want something lush. They're going to play Tony McManus, fingerstyle, Celtic stuff. And, you know, I can voice an OM a ton of different ways, depending on the top wood we select, whether it's red spruce or European spruce and how light it is. Red spruce is very consistent. Mm-hmm. You rarely see a, a wide range of density in red spruce, okay. whereas all the other spruces go, they're all over the place. So you you really need to pay more attention to mass, you know, if you're dealing with European spruce or Sitka, because they can go from extremely light to quite heavy. It seems like opinions about the other spruces are so much more varied. And you can can make those general assumptions about like, oh, yeah, maybe Sitka's quicker to respond, warms up more easily. But everybody I've talked to is like, it really varies. Like there's, it's not really really predictable. Interesting. You can get Sitka tops that are almost like cedar. I mean, they're so right. weight. And yet the heaviest, stiffest top I've ever come across by far is is the one on my banjo killer. Yeah. A Sitka top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it yeah, was so... like steel. It was ridiculous. That's crazy. Just a, a nuts piece of wood. And it's sort of the tone of conversation I've been having over and over again is more for myself, for my own personal benefit is just realizing that there's so much more. You really can't like categorize things as neatly and cleanly as maybe we we would like to from a marketing perspective. There's a lot more of a conversation you need to have with each luthier to see what they have and what they think of the woods that they have and how that would work for what you want musically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have any controversial tone wood opinions? Oh, I don't think they're controversial. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of opinions. (laughs) I don't know if they're controversial. Probably the most controversial one would be about the tree. (laughs) But (laughs) what is your what are your thoughts on the tree? Oh, I don't know. I've I've had a chance to like flex a few plates and plates and guitars made by it that were amazing. There, one of them was a Traugott made by mm-hmm. the tree. It's freaking killer. I love Jeff Traugott's work. Yeah. And uh, oh, I played um, really nice. I think it was a Buendia all bodied out of the tree. I think, you know, the wood itself was just like, I mean, it's just, it's in a, it has an incredible story. It's a miraculous freak of nature, that tree. Yeah. But uh, as far as, tonality goes i don't know i've i've only seen a couple of sets myself i don't know if there's variation within the log you know whether there were heavier sets yeah. or lighter sets the sets that i came across i wasn't really thrilled with just because they didn't have a classic mahogany sound mahogany has an incredible tap tone mm. it's very very responsive when you get good quarter sawn under and mahogany it's lightweight it's incredibly stiff it has a phenomenal complex tap tone which is weird because mahogany guitars are not known for their complexity that's what i want them to be is dry have a woody classic style 18 character to them i'm not looking for complexity but 
when you tap it, I mean, it's it doesn't tap like walnut or maple, which is a very dull tap. Okay, but interesting. You can make fantastic guitars. I love making maple guitars, but when you tap it, it's not a complex tap. Mm-hmm. Walnut. I love red spruce. If you're making Martin style stuff, I love red spruce. It has a, a strong low end, a strong fundamental, which works for my style of build. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very dependably, almost without fail, very str- stiff along the grain. It mm-hmm. can be wildly, if it's off quarter, it can be wildly floppy side to side okay. and still make a good guitar. You know, I don't use floppy red spruce. I did in my early career because we couldn't get good red spruce, but it always made good guitars. I think because it's always strong along the grain where it really counts in a lot of ways. Although that's another thing I was taught to check for stiffness across the grain. People didn't pay much attention to stiffness with the grain. (laughs) All the stuff I was taught, I'm like, it's all a pack of lies. (laughs) To learn by just doing what works for you, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't know, as far as topwood goes, I haven't worked with redwood and cedar. I worked with it at Bourgeois, of course. And Dana used to make those tops very thick. Hmm. I don't know what other people do with them. Um, it's really interesting. You can't determine how stiff they are across the grain because they break. Uh, I don't okay. know if you've ever, have you ever flexed a cedar guitar top before it was made into a guitar? I don't think so, no. Such a fun thing because if you're used to feeling, you know, guitar tops come in a in a little rectangle about eight inches wide, 22 inches long, and maybe, you know, three sixteenths of an inch or a little more than an eighth of an inch thick. And, you know, we guitar makers have all this fun going through huge stacks of wood, just like picking it up, flex it. First thing you do is flex across the grain. If it's good that way, you flex along the grain. And then you feel the weight and then you might tap it, which really doesn't tell you much, but you do it out of habit. <laughs> and then you can go through like a hundred tops really fast that way. You know, okay, just like, boom, next one, next, you know, and when we're picking out wood at wood suppliers, that's how it is. You go through it really fast. Um, and with cedar, you can't evaluate it across the grain because as soon as you part to start to put stress on it, it breaks. <laughs> okay. Oh, interesting. But it also weighs nothing. I mean, it's uh-huh. absolutely featherweight. It's like like it's made out of styrofoam. Oh, crazy. Anyway, but I, I haven't used cedar for myself just because it's, it's really not a good choice if you want to make a Martin-style guitar. Right, I'm right. Saying, you know, I mean, there's people who make OMs with cedar tops, which are fine, and they make great guitars. They just aren't Martin-esque. You know, if you're after that Martin sound, cedar is not the way to get it. You know, yeah. It's just a very different character. For sure. back inside woods do you have a personal favorite or anything that you'd build for yourself or yeah basically that's, that's the question um no my my most controversial opinion about back inside woods would be that indian rosewood is great yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> and i've hardly be... ever used it i mean I've, yeah. I've only built a few guitars out of it the reason being when people spend a lot of money on a hand-built instrument they want something that isn't like everything else right nobody's going to go to a guy and spend $10,000 to 
and say, make me something that looks like a Collins. Right, right, right. Nothing against Collins. It's just that they want something unique and special. I don't know. I like it all. I've been hoarding wood like a hoarder, you know, (laughs) since the moment I got into this business. Even before I was a guitar maker, I was hoarding wood. Um, I remember tearing up a redwood deck. I was out in California working in this machine shop and we had a slow week. So we did some side work you know, with some contractor friends of ours, and we tore up a deck made out of beautiful redwood, mm-hmm. and I kept a whole bunch of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's still out in the rafters, probably, in, in, at somebody's shop out in Walnut Creek. <laughs> um, I never, I didn't take it to the East Coast with me. But, Do you know if any uh, guitars have been made out of it? No, but uh, there's a great violin maker, um, John Cooper, who's in Portland, Maine, okay. and uh, he went out to the west coast and got some amazing redwood now he's he's a very traditional and traditionally trained violin maker and gosh he's made some fiddles for some really well-known people and and a lot of nashville people actually i think he made some some stuff out of redwood which is really odd because it's yeah traditional guy who would use like very very old german maple and old you know italian and german spruce and stuff usually anyway so i've been you know i i came on the scene in the early 90s and by then all the old guys were already complaining about how you couldn't get good good wood anymore. Yeah. (laughs) So I looked around and I'm like, oh, well, anytime I sell a guitar, some of that money is going to buy more wood and Mm -hmm. just stash it. And so that's what I've been doing ever since to the point where, you know, like there were, I'm sorry to say one winter, we ran out of firewood to heat our house because I'd bought a lot of Brazilian rosewood that year. Oh, (laughs) no. um, yeah. Oh, it wasn't that smart, but uh, it paid It paid off in the end. I like it all. I mean, I really do. I'm not one of these guys who's snobby about wood at all. It just depends on what you want to do. Some woods do certain things better than others. I usually just talk to the client and say, what's your, let's start with what you're after in terms of sound. Yeah. Then based on that, here's your options for all the different aesthetic considerations we can have. And also how does that work within your budget? Because some of these woods are more expensive than others you know, and then just take it from there. My main gripe about wood is that most of the woods used in guitar making are, you know, the rosewoods and now the alternative rosewoods are tropical species that are small. Mm -hmm. And those forests have been logged to like near extinction. So what was available, what very little is available to the guitar making community is mostly garbage. You know, just stuff that was used, you know, traditionally is quarter sawn wood. And that's because you have a plate that is an eighth of an inch thick. It's, you know, 15 to 16 inches wide. And because it's so thin and so wide, it's very responsive to humidity changes and prone to cracking. Mm-hmm. And quarter sawn wood is more stable. Just the nature of the way the stru- wood structure is means it moves less. It's under less stress, under extreme conditions that's why people build with quarter sawn wood it may be boring looking you know a quarter sawn piece of indian rosewood is dark and it has no figure in it or no you know no stripes no anything it's boring <laughs> but it's really good sounding and it's stable yeah it's the, it's the right choice <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is why you know martin made you know 10 million guitars out of quarter sawn indian rosewood or whatever so far yeah um, you know, I've always tried to buy really boring wood. I've, I've, and 
I was on a quest from the very beginning. I couldn't afford Brazilian rosewood when I started. So I said, what's the best substitute on the market right now? Probably Cocobolo. And I wanted stuff that looked like pre-war Martin, Cocobolo with totally straight grain. And it took me three years to get my first batch of Cocobolo. Wow. I called everybody. I called, you know, Luthiers Mercantile, Allied, Stumac, whoever was supplying wood at all. I called them and begged for quarter sawn Cocobolo. Nobody could get it. They even told me who their suppliers were. I called them. And after three years, I finally got a call from one of those suppliers saying, we got some in. And I ended up with like a stash of 20 sets of really tight grain, straight grain. Oh, nice. It went on my first guitars, you know, because I was, like I said, I was hoarding wood even before I had circuit guitars. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew I was going to need wood if I started the company up. So I better start hoarding wood. Yeah. I think maybe I'm more of a wood hoarder than a guitar maker. (laughs) (laughs) It's difficult. (laughs) Well, you had to have the foresight. So it makes sense. I told my wife, you know, this is going to pay dividends in the future. Just trust me. Mm -hmm. It's a good investment. And uh, it really was. In fact, interestingly, the only time, I mean, that's been true even of the Brazilian rosewood, but Brazilian rosewoods, oddly enough, there was only a couple suppliers for the past 25 years. Up until recently, you could get a decent set of Brazilian rosewood for about a thousand bucks. And that hadn't changed in 20 years. Whereas Cocobolo, you could used to buy for $67 a set, and now it's $500 a set. And and you can't even get anything good, you know? (laughs) It's interesting. Brazilian has gone up now. There's the, the Brazilian supply has pretty much pretty much dried up. Um, but I thought it was going to be gone in a few years. When I first got into it in early in the early 90s, I thought I better buy all the Brazilian I can because there won't be any of it by night, you know, late the late 90s, you won't be able to get even a set. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that turned out to be wrong. Well, I don't want to keep you for too much longer, so I'll try to wrap up with the last few important questions. Um yeah. Uh, yeah, we should definitely talk a bit more about these guitars that we've got incoming. So first of all, the, the Beeswing Mahogany Dreadnought. So uh, anything yeah. anything special to note about that one? Yeah, I love it. Um, it has a very thin finish on it. I, this last batch of guitars that I just finished um, have really thin uh, finish on the top. Mm-hmm. And you can really hear it. The guitar is really lively, has more low end than I expected out of. I don't build Dreadnoughts that lightly. Mm-hmm. I was influenced by a great maker named Matt Arcara, who used to be in a great band called Joy Killed Sorrow. Yeah, yeah. He works in the same building with me. And um, when he first showed up, he showed me this dreadnought that he'd built for himself. And I had been trying to tighten up my dreads for years, like tectonic shift pace, like the <laughs> tiniest little increments, a little bit thicker top, tiny bit less scalping of the X. Because as I said earlier, I was my guitar started out as copies of like early thirties dreads and they were very loose. And I kept saying, I wanted them tighter. I wanted them a little tighter, but I was afraid to kill the tone. And he showed up with a D 18 with like Lincoln logs for braces in it. I mean, it was just <laughs> massive. It looked, it made fifties Martin bracing look like puny, and yet it still sounded good because he's building with hide glue and nitro. There's mm-hmm. no catalyzed finish on it. And the tops were thick. Now, it was a stiff-ass guitar. I mean, you need a strong right hand to play it. Mm-hmm. But the B and E string on that guitar were the best I've ever heard on a Dreadnought, ever. Wow. I mean, you hit them hard. There's something about that open E string that is unbelievable. Hmm. Now, since that time, that was like eight years ago or something, Matt's guitars have come toward mine, and mine have gone toward his, at least as far as the Dreadnoughts go. Mm-hmm. Like, mine have gotten stiffer, and his have gotten looser. <laughs> <laughs> 
And we're kind of meet, eventually we'll meet in the middle. But um, this one that I made for you guys is, you know, has a pretty substantial X brace. The back braces are pretty large, at least by my standards. I kept the back fairly thick. I don't want a loose back mm-hmm. on a dreadnought. Um, and it has a really, it has some of the, what I call the Arcara E-string, which you can just like twang on it hard with a pick. And mm-hmm. it just still sounds great. But it's also, you know, it's not super tight. It plays, it's responsive, um, you know, so really hit the sweet spot. It's what I've been after for a long time is to get a guitar that you can root with a ton of headroom that is still not overbuilt, that's that's responsive. thing that surprised me the most was the low end. It has a, it has a really ballsy, great low end for a mahogany dreadnought. Awesome. Yeah, great. so it's a really fun guitar to play. Yeah, very excited to, to get to play that and see it. And we've also got the Cocobolo double O coming in, but that's sometime later this year, right? Yeah, the body is built. I got to check on whether the, I might be waiting for a fretboard for it. I've had terrible, terrible issues with suppliers recently. Mm-hmm. I'm having fretboards inlaid by a company in Texas, and they had some issues with their CNCs. I used to have all my um, head plates hand cut by Dave Nichols, and all my fretboards would be machine cut. Okay. And they had a problem with their CNC and they're back ordered by like five months. It's crazy. And I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for fretboards back. I, and the funny thing is I sent them like my best ebony. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so like it's very hard to get good quality ebony these days, like really hard. Hmm. And I sent them this like gorgeous old jet black ebony for style 42 and 45 boards. And it just, you know, it's still in Texas. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but um, you know, it's it's that's the pandemic still winding through supply chain issues. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But yeah, the Cocobolo guitar has some nice straight Cocobolo, and um, that one has, I'm pretty sure, a German top. Okay. Um, and I, I went to Germany like eight years ago, eight or so years ago. I went to Germany to buy wood because I could not get good. German spruce or European spruce. I kept ordering it and stuff would arrive and it was garbage. Um, you know, I was ordering master grade stuff and I'd order 20 sets and like two of them would be good. It was just ridiculous. Oh, wow. And I, I am picky, but I wasn't being that picky. It was just <laughs> people were sending garbage. So I'm like, I talked to Jeff Traugott. It turned out the one place that I'd had good luck was also the place that he was buying topwood from. And so I was like, I'm going over there and I went over and spent a day and picked out about a hundred tops. And, you know, like I said, it was that same experience. There's a stack, literally three feet tall, two feet wide, two feet, you know, like just a giant tower, just going through quick, boom, boom, (laughs) boom, boom, you know, until you got a stack and then you go through that. Then you keep whittling it down until finally you've got the ones that like meet all your standards. And I pick out heavy German tops because I'm building steel string guitars. I'm not building, you know, like a Ramirez style classical. I need a guitar top to have some mass to give me the voice I want. Yeah. I don't, I played guitars with very, very light tops and I love them, but I feel like they do a very specialized thing. Mm -hmm. And I tend, one of the reasons I love the Martin voice, even in the different ways I push it, is its versatility. You can do so much with it. And I think having a guitar with a certain amount of mass gives you more versatility. Right. But this is, you know, this is going to be a small guitar, so it's not going to be overly built. You know, Mm -hmm. the double O is so small, you you really have to build it lightly or it's going to be overbuilt. It's going to be too tight. Mm -hmm. I remember when we first made double O's when I was with the 
Eric Schoenberg and Julius Borges, we'd been making 12 triple O's and OMs for Eric. And Eric is like, hey, nobody's made a double O in like, you know, since the 60s when Martin was making double O's and, and nobody's oh, made one like the third since double O's didn't exist in the late 90s. Nobody wow. was. And so Eric's like, we need another model to sell to people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's make some double O's. They're cool. <laughs> And so we did, we made like four or five of them and they were, they were tight. I mean, they were really good, but they were just not quite there. And then we decided we were going to shift to a thinner X brace. And the first one we strung up was like, Julius and I just like danced around the, the room. I mean, it just was mind blowing. It was so, what I was t telling you about, like the projection mm -hmm. of the small guitars, that thing hit the sweet spot. That guitar went out to Eric's shop and was bought by Scott Nygaard. Okay. And um, and it was on the cover of Acoustic Guitar Magazine, and he used it on a bunch of albums, and he flat picks on it. Mm -hmm. I love 12-fret double O's because they're small enough that you can't overdrive them. You mm -hmm. can flat pick them, and yet you can build them light enough to be wonderful fingerstyle instruments. It's the most versatile model, in my opinion, Yeah. if you, if you can live with a 12-fret neck. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about the one going to you guys, and it's I think it's got a cutaway as well. So okay. it's going to be, you know, it's a 12 fretter, but it has access up the neck. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm super excited to hear it. Double O's, I never really considered them for the longest time, but like in the last year or so, I think it's because of working with Kim because she's such a big double O person too, but yeah. that's, I really would like to get a double O at some point. I think they, I think you're right. Like they totally have their own sound and they can be so loud and they can be so great for both flat picking and finger picking, like kind of defies what I thought were the stereotypes of, you know, oh, you got to have the dread for the flat picking. Like, no, double O's can do it oh, too. Oh, everybody's been, you know, I've been building flat picking small guitars for the past like five years. My one innovation of the past five years has been what I call the hybrid X brace, which is a Gibson Martin hybrid X brace. In other words, it's a Martin scalloped X brace, but it's taller. Mm. Gibson bracing, at least at one at some point in their career, they had these very narrow, tall, triangular braces. Mm -hmm. Whereas Martin is more of a, a trapezoid. It's like a parabola with the top cut off mm -hmm. when they scallop it. I found that what I wanted to do was keep the mass of the X the same, but give it a little bit more stiffness near the bridge area. This is one way I kind of evolved from doing what I was doing with Julius, which was you know classic pre-war Martin stuff, which I thought was a little on the quiet side. These are guitars that are incredibly versatile. They're loud and you can flat pick them. And I've been, there's a lot of people these days buying small guitars that they flat pick on, or they do a lot of different things on. There, there's so many groups out there. It used to be in the acoustic world, you either sold to fingerstyle guys or you sold to bluegrassers. Mm -hmm. Now you look at the acoustic scene and there are a million bands out there that are two or three people, one's on fiddle, one's on mandolin, one's on guitar, and the guitarist is playing an OM or something, and they have to strum loudly on one song. They're doing finger picking on the other song. You know, they're flat picking a fiddle tune. Mm -hmm. They're doing all this stuff and the smaller guitars that can take a pick are perfect for that. Yeah. And those are the guitars I actually 
love for myself. You know, like if I build one of those and before it goes out, I keep it for a while and, <laughs> and play them because I love doing like, you know, little flat picking stuff on a on an OM or a double O. That slightly taller X-brace works great for that. Interesting. Well, awesome. Um, last couple questions for you. Uh, do you, are you going to any of the shows this year? I am. I'm going to the Artisan Show in just a, a month and a half. And I don't do that many shows. I, I always go to the Swananoa Gathering, which mm. is a teaching camp mm-hmm. outside of Asheville. I've been doing that since I think 2006. And um, there's only a couple of years on site. And uh, it's a wonderful camp because there's a guitar component and also a singer-songwriter component. Right. When I first went there, I thought, oh, no, it's going to be like a mighty wind. There's going to be all these old people singing horrible folk songs. And then I discovered if you've ever been to a guitar event, it's a whole bunch of guitar talk. It bores the crap out of you. you know, <laughs> all this guitar shit, I, you know. <laughs> but singer songwriters, if you hang out with these people who do it professionally, and there's a ton of them on campus teaching, they are rock on tours. They're incredible storytellers. They love to drink. <laughs> And they are so much fun. And um, so I go to that event and I do Artisan. And I don't know if I'm going to do Woodstock next year or not. Um, I try to keep it close so I don't have to ship guitars. Mm -hmm. You know, so I can drive to Artisan. It's in Philadelphia and I'm in Maine. Right. Um, Or it's not in Philadelphia. It's in Harrisburg, but it's in Pennsylvania. Um, Well, a couple of fun questions I always like to ask. uh, What's your go-to for listening when you're in the workshop? Um, girl in red, uh, culture, you know, I, I was a jazz nerd. Um, so I listened to thank God for Spotify. I know it's evil. People in the music business hate Spotify, I know, for I know. Good yeah. reason. but you know, I was, I've been a record collector my whole life. I have like thousands of records, but I could never, I was always quantity over quality. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted as much as I could get. And I couldn't afford, you know, like vintage Blue Note records. And so now I have a Spotify playlist with like literally 2000 Blue Note tunes on it. Yeah. You know, so classic Blue Note post-bop stuff is my go-to. And um, and a lot of electronic lesbian dance music. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you may think I'm kidding, but my my kids have turned me on to uh a lot of really amazing i'm i'm just blown away by how much great music is being produced these days yeah yeah there's um, so, i mean there's just like a non-stop slew of good great stuff yeah i don't honestly i don't listen to acoustic music that much anymore interesting um, it's kind of hilarious jason berlin was in maine studying uh filmmaking mm-hmm. as a you know, to like so that he could do more filming for fretboard journal and he stopped by the shop just sort of on a whim. He's like, hey, John, I'm coming through Portland. Can I visit your shop? And I was like, sure. You know, like I showed him around and he's like, I'll just take a few pictures. And then a couple of weeks later, people started calling me saying, hey, Slobod, there's a feature on you in Fretboard Journal on their, online. He never mentioned anything that he was going to do anything <laughs> like that. And, and there's a picture of like my, I have this wall of vinyl and in front on playing was like the classic, like second Doc Watson record. Mm. And I thought that's so sad because it's so cliche, you know, Doc <laughs> Watson record. You know, why couldn't it have been like Eric Dolphy or, you know, or the Slits or something? Yeah. But, um, but you know, I worship Doc. I absolutely worship Doc. I'm so glad I got to see him. My kids, you know, we used to listen to Doc Watson all the time. They love Doc Watson. And so, you know. 
Yeah. I'm not going to complain, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can put out the the memo that you are a big lesbian EDM and uh, post-bop <laughs> fan on this, this podcast. You gotta try it, man. Gotta, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was such a pleasure to talk with you and to get, you know, some more backstory on, on, on your life and your experience. And of course, to hear about the two guitars we've got coming in. So yeah, thanks so much for, for being on the pod. Oh, it was fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I yap on for hours and hours. So. No, no, I love it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Guitar. Recently arrived, we have a stunning Circa D18 with a red spruce top and beeswing mahogany that will knock your socks off both tonally and visually, as well as two pre-owned OMs and another Dread. As always, links to these guitars as well as John's own site will be below in the show notes. More luthier chats are coming up soon with Jeff Jewett, Frank Sly of Sylvan Guitars, Simon Haycraft of Preston Thompson, and more, so be sure to check back next week for the latest episode.